Well, this morning, um, we're going to finish out this uh, short section from Philippians that we've been studying together uh, over these last couple weeks. Next week, we're going to look forward to having Jason preach for us from the book of Jonah. Uh, so that, that will be great. And then after that, we're going to finish 1 Samuel. We'll head back and complete our expositions in, in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, but today, it's Philippians. And uh, last week, if you remember, as we looked at verse 5 about being uh, graciously lenient, uh, we set that in the context of Paul's priorities for these Christian believers at Philippi. And the apostles' priorities revolved around uh, what their purpose is as gospel people. And, and the apostle uh, helped them along these lines by speaking to them not only about the significance of Christ, but then what it means to follow Him as those who've been saved by Him. So back in chapter 2, uh, Paul had spent that time laying out how Jesus is the one who set aside the glories of heaven in order to go all the way to the cross to be our Savior. He humbled himself all the way to the cross, even death on the cross, to save us. And not only that, uh, but Jesus is going to return, and one day to him every knee will bow, every tongue will confess his universal and sovereign lordship. So uh, Paul's just laid out uh, some of the magnificent glories of Christ. He's laid out the humility of Christ, what he's done to come and be our Savior. And then in chapter 2, Paul gives a very helpful, a very distinct purpose statement to these Philippian believers as they live in response to who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, so in Philippians chapter 2, we find Paul saying to them that, that in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, they're to shine like stars in the sky. A big part of our purpose as those who've been saved by Jesus is to be a light for Jesus in a world this dark. That's what Paul is communicating to them. And, and the question, of course, becomes how do we do that? What, what does it look like for us as Christian believers to fulfill that purpose for our lives? What does it look like to shine as, as stars in a dark sky? What does it look like to live as a light for Jesus in the world around us, which is so often shrouded in darkness? And among other things, Paul gives us three ways in which we can live out our purpose in this section as we've been studying these verses over the last few weeks. Uh, because to shine for Christ in a dark world uh, means some very specific things. And so what Paul has done for us here in uh, the passage that Jenny just read for us is he gives four directives here that help us think about what it looks like to live for Jesus in the world around us, which of course is very timely for us even as we're on the edge of a new year. Uh, we spoke about this last week, but as we begin a new year, one of the natural things that we consider at this time is our purpose. Why do we exist? Why do we get up in the morning and go to work every day? Why do we go to school every day? Why do we engage in the relationships that we do? Uh, we need purpose that underpins those things. And of course, in knowing Christ, uh, that purpose is filled out. And a big part of that purpose is wherever we go, whatever we do, whomever we're with, uh, we're called to shine as lights for Jesus. So what does that look like? Paul helps us work that out in this section. As he said, first of all, which we looked at uh, just before Christmas time, he, he, he says that we are to shine for Christ in a dark world as we're rejoicers. He's given us this directive in Philippians chapter 4 to rejoice in the Lord always. So even when sorrow is present, because of our union with Jesus Christ, because we belong to Him, we have cause for constant rejoicing. Uh, so, so as we express a tone, a tone of gladness in our lives, uh, what we're doing is communicating something unique, a joy that can transcend the sorrowful circumstances we may be facing. And as we live with that kind of joy, uh, we're shining as a light for Jesus in the world. 
can we be happy as we endure difficult circumstances as Christian believers? Well, we have Jesus. And as a result of, of making that confession, as a result of living out that joy, uh, we have an effect on those around us. And then last week, uh, we saw how shining like stars in the sky doesn't just include rejoice in the Lord always, but it also includes having a reputation uh, for a kind of gracious leniency as Christian believers. Uh, Paul has said, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Uh, so as those who have known the gracious mercies of Christ, uh, what Paul is getting at here is, is instead of, of pressing things to their fullest extent, so in, instead of having to get all that we may even legitimately have coming to us, instead we're people who show leniency. We're gracious people. We extend kindness shown to us first by Jesus to others around us. Uh, for example, maybe by, by not requiring the full recompense from those who've offended. Uh, just like this term was used in a legal context like we talked about last week. Or, or we're people who extend kindness uh, that's first shown to us by, by being patient and forbearing and, and even having a, a willingness to be wrong at times in our life. We are those who extend gracious leniency toward others um, because, of, because of who Jesus is. And as we, as we have a reputation for that, which is what Paul calls us to here, uh, let this be known to everybody about us as Christian believers as we live in that way that we're shining as lights in a dark world. We're shining for Jesus. So there's two. We rejoice in the Lord always. We extend gracious leniency. We're known for that. And then we come to the third element that Paul brings up this morning. And this may be uh, the most weighty of all of them. Do not worry. Don't worry about anything. Literally in Greek, it's just two words there in the beginning of verse 6. If we were going to put it as, as, as literally as possible, we have to say uh, Paul communicates very clearly and, and in, in command kind of language, he says, be anxious about not a thing. Be anxious about nothing. So anxiety. Do you know anything about anxiety? If you do a Google search for the word anxiety, you get 1.4 billion results. Apparently, people are interested. If you search the term on Amazon, the search yields everything from herbal supplements to inspirational bracelets to books. About 70,000 results there on Amazon. Uh, anxiety at a clinical level of concern was reported back in a 2017 Harvard study to affect 19% of Americans at any given time. That's about 62 million people in the United States. Uh, the same Harvard study showed that about 31% of Americans will experience anxiety at a clinical level at some point in their lifetime. Uh, anxiety is a subject of much, much research. It's a, a qualifying difficulty for a prescription from your doctor. Anxiety is multifaceted. Anxiety is deeply personal. Anxiety keeps us up at night. Anxiety is the opposite of peace. Anxiety percolates in our own lives because of the things we face at a personal level. Anxiety, anxiety percolates in our own hearts because of the things we become familiar with on the world stage. Anxiety is around us. Anxiety is within us. W.H. Auden, the 20th century British poet, he wrote a poem uh, entitled September 1, 1939. That was the title of the poem. And that title reflects the day that German armies invaded Poland, which marked the beginning of World War II. And, and he starts his poem, marking out the anniversary of the beginning of the Second World War in this way. He says, I sit in one of the dives off 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid. I sit in one of the dives off 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid. It's anxiety. 
The Oxford Dictionary defines anxiety in this way. It is a state of uneasiness accompanied by dysphoria and somatic or bodily signs and symptoms of tension focused on the apprehension of possible failure, misfortune, or danger. Focused on the apprehension of possible failure, misfortune, or danger. So here's a question to start us off. Have you ever experienced uneasiness that can manifest itself in bodily ways because of the possibility of failure, misfortune, or danger? I have. I expect you have too. Enter the Apostle Paul. Be anxious for nothing. Instead, and everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Probably those verses are familiar to us. And we can hear those verses, especially as we just read them, we can hear them, we can recite them, we can even have a well-meaning friend rattle them off to us quickly as they're trying to comfort us in the face of difficulty that we may be facing. We can hear those verses and we might want to say to Paul, you don't even know. You don't even know. You have no idea the kinds of potential failures, misfortunes, and dangers that I'm facing. No doubt the first recipients of this letter might have responded that way to Paul's instruction here because remember what the church at Philippi was facing as Paul wrote to them. So, so in the Philippian church, two of the ladies who are some of Paul's closest gospel workers, they're in the midst of fighting right now in the church. False teachers, heretics have shown up in the church. They're teaching things contrary to the sufficiency of Jesus. That's going on in the Philippian church. Others in the church are being selfish and grumbling and complaining. And if that's not bad enough, some of them have actually been hauled off to prison because of their allegiance to Jesus by the local Roman authorities. With these kinds of pressures, how in the world can Paul say such a thing? Do not be anxious. Doesn't he know the things that we're facing? Uh, and, and the answer, of course, is he does know. Paul, remember, he's, he's been whipped and shipwrecked himself. And even as he writes this, the apostle is currently sitting in a Roman prison himself. Paul knows. And so rather than being patronizing with instruction, what Paul is doing is giving us priceless truth, which is here for us to rest in as we set our minds on this and as we think about it well. Here, Paul is giving us gospel truth that runs totally counter to the darkness all around us. And he's giving us gospel truth that works as a solve, that works medicinally in a gospel kind of way to relieve the pressures that start to percolate within us. Ultimately, what we have here is, is a word about worry and concern that finds relief sourced in what Jesus alone can affect. And so this morning, what we're going to do as we look out on a new year, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, to, to take our position uh, in an honest place, really. We could say it like that. We look out on a new year, and guess what? As we look out on a new year, what, what's going on before us? As we think about different things that we're facing, different things that are coming, as we look out on the unknown circumstances that can change, we, we look out on a year that is full of potential failures, misfortunes, and dangers. We can be honest about that. But instead of looking out with worry, as we come to the truth, as Paul unpacks it here, we can actually look out with hope and sustaining purpose because of what's true for us, the privileges that are ours in our union with Christ. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take just a, just a few minutes and look at verses 6 and 7. Uh, we'll take these verses in three parts so you can follow along as we go. It's, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to begin in verse 6 
and, and, and think a little bit about Paul's negative prohibition here, this negative prohibition. So in the first part of verse 6, Paul says, do not worry, do not be anxious about anything. Now, one matter that we need to come to terms with right away is the nature of the Greek word that's used here. The CSB translates this as worry. Uh, do not worry. It's translated in other English Bibles as anxious. If you're reading from the ESV, it says anxious in there. In fact, most say anxious, I think. Uh, but it's one of those Greek words that can, that can have either a positive or a negative meaning based on context. And Greek words do this more often than English words do. Uh, so, so, for example, one, one primary example of this is when Paul is speaking about uh, eldership, pastoral ministry in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And he says, uh, you know, the one who desires the office of elder desi- uh, desires a noble thing. He, he's, he's going after a noble task. Paul uses the word desire in a very positive way. That same Greek word Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's translated as lust. So one is very positive and commendable. One is obviously sin that, need, that needs to be dealt with. Same Greek word, though, is present there. And, 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 and Greek they uses words in these ways from time to time. And that's, and that's how this word is used here. We need to know that. Because if we're reading through uh, Philippians so far, back in chapter 2, Paul speaks about his pastoral understudy Timothy. He actually commends his pastoral understudy Timothy uh, for his proven Christ-like character. And when Paul's speaking about Timothy, he says, I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. Literally, Paul says there, I have no one else who will be genuinely anxious for your interests. Same, same word. In chapter 2, Paul is commending this as a Christ-like quality in Timothy. In chapter 4, it's absolutely prohibited. And that's because this word is used like that. And as we think about it, we actually understand some aspects of anxiety to function in this kind of good or bad way too. We can have categories for this, Uh, except usually we we use the word stress instead of anxiety if we're going to go between positives and negatives. Well, we like the word stress maybe a little bit more, but we can talk about bad stress and good stress, can't we? It's good stress that puts the pressure on when that work project is coming due. That's not a bad thing. It's actually healthy for us to feel the pressure to get the project done. It's what makes sermons come together by 10 o'clock on Sunday every single week for me, this kind of good stress. It's not a negative thing in and of itself. It's not bad to have that kind of pressure. But what becomes troublesome is when it's not productive pressure and instead it's that kind of panic and despair and hopeless, overwhelming sense that can set in. And that's what Paul is addressing here now in chapter 4 with do not be anxious. One commentator described what Paul's speaking about here as harassing care. That's a good description of of what he's getting at here. Harassing cares. For this Philippian church, we can tell by the the verb tense that's used, they need this word from Paul. Because as we even think about the verb tense that's used, it becomes clear that this uh, succumbing harassing cares isn't just something that happens off and on uh, with the folks in this congregation, but it's actually become a habitual and ongoing pattern of worry for them. In the, in the lives of these believers. This, this worry is something that just keeps on going on for them, this concern about harassing care. So it's very present for them. And, and as we just let that kind of language settle in for a moment in terms of recognizing what Paul's addressing, uh, we can be helped thinking about how this church is facing genuine pressure, both from within and without. And in the midst of that genuine pressure, the effect of harassing cares on these believers is present as this ongoing negative angst in their life. And so in that way, we can, we can identify with this. 
It was Sinclair Ferguson who says, the you in the text is not always the you in the pew. Right? That old word for church bench. Right? And we need to remember that as we're reading our Bibles. The context of those who this letter was first written to is different than the context that we're in. However, we also know that the word speaks to us in a kind of way that transcends the barriers, the time, the history, and all that that comes between us. Because here's a church that is enduring harassing cares on Monday. They're enduring harassing cares on Tuesday. When they wake up, when they go to bed, there's this habitual pattern of worry that takes root in their hearts. And we can identify with that kind of thing. These kinds of worries can set in in, in in a kind of way that seems continuous and ongoing. And Paul addresses it directly as he extends this prohibition. Do not worry about anything. He calls for the worry to stop. And again, we can read this and think, Paul, Paul just must not be much of a people person at all. What, what, what is the deal with this? Why would he say this? You know, we, we just think about this. How does it go when you're a little grumpy and your spouse or your friend tells you to stop being grumpy? Works instantly, doesn't it? Every time. Jared, stop being grumpy. Oh, thank you for telling me that. That really helps. I, my, you know, I'm, I'm going to be sunshine and roses the rest of the day. I just really, really appreciate you telling me to stop being so grouchy. Isn't that how it works? It's not how it works. Not even close. Same with worry. Oh, I see that a deep concern and, and, and fears have really started to rest heavily upon you. You know, you're pressed down continually with harassing cares. I've been noticing that for some time now. What I'd like you to do is stop doing that. Just don't do that anymore. Right? Don't be anxious about anything. How, how would you respond to that? Well, thank you very much for that wonderful and timely word of help. That instantly makes me feel better. No. No. So what, what is Paul doing here? I have to come to terms with this. Well, it, it might strike us as odd at first, but what Paul is doing here is what he so often does in his kind of pastoral care. He calls for an absolute about face, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't leave the people simply to exercise their own ability in not doing something anymore. He says stop worrying, but then like any good pastor, like any good counselor, he gives the tools for the task at hand. He doesn't just leave the people with the prohibition. So what we see in the rest of verse 6 is we move from this negative prohibition to a positive directive. A positive directive. So Paul says, don't worry. Okay, Paul, how am I going to do that? Well, instead of falling into habitual patterns of anxiety and letting those rule the day for you, instead, here's the gospel tool you need, Paul says. He says, in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So you just see how, how Paul counters a kind of comprehensive prohibition. Do not worry about anything. It's this comprehensive prohibition. Paul counters that with a comprehensive gospel directive in everything. So instead of worrying about anything, in everything, come before God in prayer, requesting and thanking, requesting and thanking, requesting and thanking. Paul does the same kind of counter move in Colossians 3 where he speaks of putting sin to death. He talks about putting off things like malice and anger, but he doesn't just leave it there. How, how are we to put off malice and anger? Well, he talks about putting on righteous counterparts like humility and gentleness and those kinds of things. This is how Paul does it. We get to know Paul and we see how he works things out pastorally for us as, as we seek to live in light of the gospel. Here we have Paul calling for replacing a, a kind of horizontal worry about life with a vertical reorientation of our hearts in all things. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, come before God requesting and thanking. Requesting and thanking. It's interesting that Paul speaks about thanksgiving here. 
Uh, remember the Philippians, they, they had a, a grumbling problem back in chapter 2, verse 14. They were grumbling and complaining. And Paul's a good pastor. He's not saying here that when anxiety is crouching at our door, we're supposed to just ask things of God and that's it. He doesn't say that. Because what can happen? Well, our asking can turn into grumbling asking. It can, at least mine can in prayer, can't it? I need this, God. Things are really, things are really bad right now. Things are wrong. Why can't they be different? Bring about the change that I keep asking for. Fuss, fuss, fuss. Grumbling. We can grumble in prayer. But Paul knows that's not the, the medicinal gospel prayer alternative to anxiety that we need. The medicinal gospel prayer alternative is requesting with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Oh Lord, I'm facing big things right now and I'm worried. Thank you that you ordained the end from the beginning. Oh Lord, there are unique dangers that I need your help to overcome. There's dangers around the next corner of my life. It doesn't feel safe. Thank you that you promised me that nothing can separate me from your love. Oh Lord, I just can't seem to fit my head around the responsibilities of the day. I'm weary, I'm tired, and I just don't think I'm going to be able to do it. I'm overwhelmed by what might happen. I need, I need help. Thank you that your power is made perfect in my weakness. Paul says, put worries down by picking up prayer, requesting, and thanking. So it's D.A. Carson, the theologian, speaking about worry, he made this comment. He said, I have yet to meet a chronic worrier who enjoys an excellent prayer life. Because prayer and worry don't go together. Which is what Paul's going to explain next in verse 7. In verse 7, he continues to move through these things and he gives us promise. This promise. As we face concerns, coming before God, requesting and thanking, the peace of God, Paul says, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So just think through this promise a little bit. The peace of God. The peace of God. So when we think about the godness of God, we need, we need to remind ourselves regularly that He is the God of aseity. Aseity is that theological term that means God is in need of nothing. Which means in and of Himself, the one true and living God of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit, He is entirely and completely and eternally and perfectly and corruptibly less. needs nothing from anyone. So when we think about God's peace, we're reminded of the fact that while God lives in a state of perfect serenity, if you like, not only is He in need of nothing, but nothing can derail His ordained purposes and plans. The God of the universe, He lives at perfect peace. He is peace. And that peace, Paul says, is not only a quality possessed by God, but it's also a gift that proceeds from God. Because as we turn to the Lord requesting and thanking, the effect of that, Paul says, is not that our immediate circumstances will necessarily all of a sudden change and the, the stormy days we're facing will turn into sunny days and everything's going to be immediately fine. That's not what Paul says. But the effect of turning to the Lord in prayer is that God has ordained prayer in such a way that His incorruptible peace, that, that serenity which reflects God's self-sufficient calm fortitude, that peace is gifted to us in our angst as we turn to Him, requesting and thanking. So D.A. Carson's comment, I have yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. That's a very accurate observation. Because in the process of prayer, Paul explains that what happens is actually something beyond what we can understand. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
comes and guards us. That guard word there is, is the word for a Roman dispatch of soldiers. These are guards that would have been stationed outside, outside Paul's uh, present situation as he sits in prison. Right? This is a military word. And so what Paul's saying is that in the midst of anxiety, as we turn to the Lord requesting and thanking, the peace of God Almighty is communicated to our own hearts in a way that is beyond what we can fully comprehend and is a peace that comes to guard us. That that peace stands like a kind of garrison of soldiers, if you like, around the inner person of who we are, around our hearts and around, actually it says minds in the CSB. It's not the regular word for mind in Greek, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not the regular word for mind. This is the word for the things you think about. This is what the mind produces. It will guard your heart, so the seat of who you are, your will, uh, your emotional being, all of those kinds of things, and it will guard the thoughts that run through your mind. It will guard the product of which is obviously something we need to have in the context of anxiety, isn't it? Because where does my mind go? Anxiety sets in. Well, those thoughts run in all kinds of different directions. What we're being told here is those things are guarding the peace of God, that, that all the directions the thoughts can run in. And, and, and why is this? Why is this privilege ours through prayer? Well, all of this comes about because, as Paul says here, we're in Christ Jesus. The peace of God guards our hearts and minds, what? In Christ Jesus. Right? This brings us back to the union with Christ truth we talked about a few weeks ago. Peace from God comes to us as a benefit and a privilege through prayer, all located in the reality that we are inseparably connected with Jesus and all the privileges that he has purchased and procured for us. So John Newton, the hymn writer, he, he speaks of our union with Christ in this way. In, in a letter, he says, The union of a believer with Christ is so intimate so unalterable, so rich in privilege, so powerful in influence, hear this now, that it cannot be fully represented by any description or similitude taken from earthly things. How inviolable is the security, how inestimable is the privilege, how inexpressible the happiness. That's union with Christ. As we trust Christ, we're brought into this rich privilege of union with God the Son, which manifests itself in such a way that when anxiety provokes us, even when anxiety has become a habitual part of our daily lives, our privileges in Christ are such that the peace of the God who needs nothing, fears nothing, is disrupted by nothing, is dominated by nothing, is destroyed by nothing. The peace of that God becomes the peace that guards our hearts and minds in that union with Christ. It's a reality that Newton says it cannot be represented by any description or similitude taken from earthly things. It's just too big, which is exactly what Paul says. This peace that's going to come and guard us, it surpasses all understanding. We just, we just can't put it into words. So ultimately, this, this promised relief from anxiety through prayer, it isn't an explain it until I get it situation. It can't be that because it goes beyond the kinds of things we can comprehend and categorize. Ultimately, what this ends up being is a Psalm 34 taste and see kind of situation. Follow Paul's instruction, he's saying, in a sense, and just see what happens. Work this out for yourself. This morning, you may be here on the cusp of many things unknown. You may be here in the midst of things dangerous. You may be accosted by worries that you, you can't quite even attach reason to. And in those situations, here's our homework. Here's your homework. You go home from church today. 
and you get down on your knees and you, th you start thanking the Lord. You thank the Lord that in Christ you will eternally lack no good thing. Thank the Lord for the cross of Christ, which purchases eternal privilege of salvation for you. Thank the Lord for the guaranteed future resurrection of your body to a life free from sorrow, pain, any threat whatsoever. Thank the Lord that all your days were numbered before one of them came to be. Thank the Lord that He's never separated Himself from you and He will. Thank the Lord that you belong to Him by grace because He wants you and chose you and not by any merit of your own. Thank the Lord that He exists in eternal aseity and nothing can disrupt His purposes of love and justice. Thank the Lord that He's peace and then pour out your request. And as you do, you will know something of the unknowable peace of God, which is beyond what we can ultimately comprehend. I think the closest we can get to describing uh, this sort of thing, that what Paul says is indescribable, but we can try. I think the closest thing we can do is, is think in, in terms of poetry. So, so I'm, I'm going to give you two poems. I don't think the poets would mind if we combine them like we're, like we're going to do it. So the first poem we can think of as a requesting poem. Uh, the second poem is one that recounts this peace we're speaking of, like what it feels like when you experience it. Okay? First poem, though, is requesting. This is a poem by John Whittier. Um, it's a request prayer, we'll say, for in, in the midst of anxiety. In praying, he says, Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Isn't that really the prayer in, in all anxious circumstances? Drop thy still dews of quietness. Could you just bring me some calm? Drop, drop still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Breathe through the heats of our desire, thy coolness and thy Let be dumb, let flesh retire. Speak through the earthquake, wind and fire. O still small voice of calm. That's a good request. Okay? And now here's an example of the peace that follows. It's a poem by Horatius Bonar. I stand upon the mount of God with sunlight in my soul. Isn't that the opposite of anxiety? I stand upon the mount of God with sunlight in my soul. I hear the storms in veils beneath. I hear the thunders roll. You see, he's realistic about the hardship that's around him. The, the storms, the thunders are still rolling. But I am calm with thee, my God, beneath these glorious skies. And to the height on which I stand, no storms, no clouds can rise. Oh, this is life. Oh, this is joy, my God, to find thee so, thy face to see, thy voice to hear, and all thy love to know. This past week, Julie and I were sitting in the sunroom in our house, and she was noticing birds in our backyard. And, and she made the comment that it's amazing how whether it's seven degrees out, which it was not that long ago, whether it's seven degrees out or 107 degrees out, uh, well, power might be out and and pipes might freeze, and God forbid the wireless goes out. Um, whether it's 7 or 107 degrees outside, those birds are out there in the backyard, and they're okay. It's amazing. The Lord cares for the birds of the air. Which, of course, brings us around to Jesus' same teaching on worry in Matthew 6. If he cares for them, you of much more value, won't he care for you? That's what he says. Which, which ultimately can leave us with one more poem. And it's a little bit of a cheesier poem, but it's good. You've probably heard it. I'm going I'm to I'm give it to you here. The title of the poem is Overheard in an Orchard. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know 
why these ancient, anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Of course, the sparrow is wrong. We have a heavenly father who cares for you and me. So much so that not a hair falls from our head apart from my father in heaven. So why don't I live like it? Why don't you live like it? You know why? It's because we're so often prayerless. The in Christ blessing of this passage is that the means which God has ordained to set us at peace in this dark and woeful world is Requesting and thanking, requesting and thanking. Anxiety largely exists because we're hit with the panicked reality that we are not in control and nothing we will do can change that. Anxiety is relieved when, before, when we come before the one who is in control and thank him that he is and request the preserving grace we need, which is promised through Jesus. All of which, all of these things, are ultimately things guaranteed for us in our union with Christ. So, so, so in this, we just thank Paul for his word. Here's how we live as light in the dark world. It's not removed from anxiety-producing circumstances. Paul's writing this from his own prison cell, for crying out loud. We're not removed from anxiety-producing circumstances. It's that we know the one who sustains us and gives us peace within those things, which is exactly why Jesus can say things like he says in John chapter 14, my peace I give to you. Remember that? I give peace, but it's not like the world's peace. What is the world's peace? Everything, all the troubles go away. Everything's going to be just fine, just as I define it. Everything's going to be okay. That's not the kind of peace that we, we have from Christ. In Christ, we have bigger peace. In Christ, we have better peace. It's a peace he purchased at the cross. It's a peace that we will rise to eternally and fully experience on the final day. It's God's peace. It's incorruptible, and it's there for us in our union with Jesus. So worries come. Anxiety comes. And it comes in strong, ways that, ways that very much can grip us. As that occurs, let's be those who turn. Not, not outward to focus on the circumstances of our worry. And not inward, hoping they'll leave us if we can just stop thinking about them. But let's turn upward, bringing those concerns before the Lord. Thanking that His saving, gracious will always stands. So don't worry about anything. But in prayer, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the incorruptible one full of grace and truth. We thank you that nothing can separate us from, our, from your love. Uh, we thank you that you're the one who not only knows the end from the beginning, but you've ordained the end from the beginning. We thank you that your plans are incorruptible. They're perfect, holy, wise, and true. We thank you that we can rely on the fact that not a hair falls from our head apart from the will of our Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for our salvation. And in a context of that kind of truth, Lord, we ask that you would preserve us. 
We ask that you would renew us. We ask uh, that we would have the strength we need to go about our days in a posture of rest under you, no matter those things we may be facing. We rely upon you for this, O Lord, because our strength is small. We are weak, but your strength is potent. Your strength is the almighty strength. Your knowledge is unending knowledge. And through your good way, we know we will ultimately stand forever with Christ. And so we pray, Father, that we would be comforted in these ways this morning. And that as we need these uh, truths to be brought back to bear uh, to our hearts and our minds, as anxieties do set upon us, we ask uh, that you would remind us of these things. Remind us of your word, which is true, which uh, reminds us most of all of our union with the Lord Jesus. May we find great comfort in that and go on faithfully. For Jesus' sake, amen.